The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome Tristram Leach, co-head of European Credit at Apollo. How are you, Tristram? I'm great, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're also delighted to welcome back Lisa Lee, who covers credit markets from London. Great to see you, Lisa. Great to talk to you too, James. Also on the show, we're going to be talking to Matt Goitner at Bloomberg Intelligence about high rates are actually good for some companies, so do stay with us. But first, Tristram Leach with Apollo. It's great to have you on the Credit Edge. You're based in London, you cover global credit, and, the, and then since you're there... In Europe, I just thought we'd start there. So I'm going to start with a question about European credit. When we look at the year so far, it has been pretty dire for the most of the world's investment-grade bonds. The US is headed for its third straight year of losses, which has never happened before when we look at our 50-year history on our index. Um, and that's mostly a rates issue. Obviously, you know, we don't expect Amazon to default on their debt, although some of their bonds are trading in the 50s, so they look pretty stressed. Um, junk bonds have done better, especially the riskiest ones, unless you're in China when you, you, you would have lost a lot of money this year. But when we look at Europe, it's you know really surprising to me that it's done so well across the board. If you'd invested in corporate bonds there and not in the US, you would have made much more money this year than, than, than anywhere else, even though the economies over there seem to be in poor shape, generally speaking, and you, although you do seem to be bit, doing a bit better on inflation. Um, and I know that index is higher quality, but how has it done so much better, Tristram, than other parts of the world? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of things going on here. Um, look, firstly, risk assets had that big rally in the early part of the of the year. Um, some of it's been been given back, but but spreads have been pretty contained in their moves all year, um, and rates have have outperformed their U.S. counterparts. Even though we've seen obviously weakening in, in rates globally, um, you know the, the the European picture is is one that's been better, partly because we have seen some more softening in inflation data here in Europe. So when you look at um, Europe credit generally, does this kind of outperformance continue? Look, I think we think all in returns to credit are pretty great. Um, Break-evens are very, very high. Um, so it's relatively hard to envisage yourself losing money in the medium term in credit. Uh, we, like many other market participants, have been really forthcoming. I think that we think this is a great time to be engaged in the credit market, and we're hearing that from a lot of our our LPs, our customers, you know, who are, who are seeking to allocate money into credit. That being said, I don't think we think spreads are a screaming buy here. Um, you've seen a little bit more weakness in kind of single Bs, etc., in in Europe versus the US, but economic data is, is slowing pretty fast, especially in Europe. Um, so I think there's there's scope for a uh, a little bit of spread weakness, um, possibly counterbalanced by by more performance in rates. 
Jason, you oversee a whole swath of different kinds of credit. When you look at the relative value, where do you see the best buy in Europe versus US, IG, junk, private, CLOs? One of the things we've been, I think, pretty forthcoming about is that um, private credit is generally offering a really attractive pickup to syndicated and public markets at the moment. If you look at where the European syndicated loan market is currently trading, and you look at where similar quality credit is pricing in the Unitranche, you know, private debt market, that pickup is really striking. For, for very similar quality companies, you're getting a material spread pickup, and obviously the all-in returns is is very, very attractive. So that's certainly something we'd call out as um, a very attractive relative value. I think the relative value piece across geographies is a little bit more um, more nuanced. You know, there's a little bit more spread at, at a given level of of credit quality in in Europe versus the US. Um, However, the European growth data has been, you know, really slowing very fast. It's pretty eye-catching how rapidly we're seeing Europe slow down. And so I think that probably does argue that you need a little bit more spread to compensate you uh, for a more challenged economy. Do you think the economy does be slowing down, which suggests to me that there might be more defaults coming up? Do you feel like that's correctly priced in, in, especially in the high yield and leverage loan markets? And also, what do you think about recoveries? Because they've been pretty drastically low in the US, but a bit higher in Europe. So as to whether the future default environment is appropriately priced, I think, you know, it's in, in, um, implied by the fact that, you know, we think there's probably room for spreads to widen a little bit here, that it's it's possibly not as fully priced uh, as it might be. Um you know, you look around the sell side and strategists, I think most people are calling for a pickup in in defaults, given the higher rate environment and given the slowing we're seeing in, in macro, it would be somewhat surprising with that not to eventuate. I think we've certainly been calling for and seeing more dispersion in credit outcomes. Um, you know, you've now got a market where, you know, there's real a real sense of winners and losers. Um, and obviously, some of those losers are going to going to tip over the edge into default. So so it makes sense to me that directionally you're probably going to see a little bit more. Um, in terms of in terms of recoveries, yes, we've seen lower recoveries. At the moment, the sample size we're dealing with is still pretty small, right? We're still in the early stages. So it's relatively hard to draw super firm conclusions about why those recoveries are lower and how durable that's likely to be. Look, across the Atlantic, we've definitely seen more of these aggressive liability management exercises going on, which are going to tend to depress recoveries. Um, in Europe, that hasn't... Uh, as yet been a material feature of the market um, and all things equal can can militate for recoveries being a little bit better on this side of the Atlantic. On the private credit side though, Tristan, you mentioned the, the big yield pickup there. We've had people tell us that it's not enough to compensate for the lack of transparency and the potential increased default risk and you know you just don't know what's going on there. Can you kind of put some numbers on it? Can you quantify like how much more of a pickup and how, how much um, more compensation are you getting for that extra risk? Yeah. Uh, look, I'd, I'd say the way I'd um, I'd look at it at the moment is as follows. I think you're probably looking at a a four fifty market for a for a standard syndicated single B, so four fifty in spread, and you're looking at six twenty five, six fifty maybe for similar quality corporates in in the in the private debt market. So so to the extent you can perform like for like and 
it's challenging because there are reasons companies are, are going one route or the other. But to the extent you can do like for like, I think you're probably getting almost 200 basis points of pickup for being on the on the private side of things, which for us feels ample compensation when additionally you're generally getting slightly better documentation, you're close to it, you have a real bilateral dialogue with the, the issuer and the sponsor. You know, that's a pretty compelling setup for us versus being in a super loosely documented syndicated loan. And the le- relative liquidity doesn't bother you? Um, look, obviously, that's part of what you're getting paid for. Um, it's it's a much less liquid product or even a wholly illiquid product. Um, but when you put your credit underwriting at the center of your process in the way we do, um, you know, we have the, the confidence in our credit views and, and to lean into them. And when we're getting 200 basis points of pickup to give up liquidity in something which we've underwritten and we're, we're super confident in, then, you know, that's that's something that is a trade that I think you're, you're meant to do. These private credit deals are getting larger and larger. In Europe, we have one that could possibly be the biggest ever in this market. As these loans get bigger, do you worry that there'll be a confluence between um, leveraged loans and some of the documentations will weaken, some of the terms will weaken, or do you think there's still a, um, a differentiation? Oh, there's, there's still a delta for sure at the moment between the terms you're getting in even the large unitranche and direct lending deals uh, versus where the syndicated market is. So so that that convergence hasn't happened yet. I think it, it it's true that the two markets are coming closer together. Um, you know, you're seeing a direct lending market that's able to speak for bigger and bigger deals, um, is able to, you know, price really material slugs of debt and, and you know, is uh, another option for all but the very, very largest companies. So I think we're seeing the syndicated and direct lending markets coming closer together. The way we've set up our credit business in Europe is really allowing us to pivot with issuers between the two. So if you look at, at some of the, the biggest financings we've done on both sides of the Atlantic this year, they've been in kind of public-private um, structures. So deals like the ASDA deal that, that we did here in Europe, that was a direct piece of financing, but for a company with with a high yield bond curve. I think you're going to see more and more of that. And I think setting up your business to be able to pivot with issuers between the multiple sources of funding is a really um, compelling offering to, to partner with them. Private credit really is the hot thing this year. Um, people are talking about the golden age. And we just had a story where showing showing that, you know, there's $500 billion of new money raised for it and, and not a lot to buy. How do you kind of find opportunities and, and do you have a kind of sector focus? I mean, do you have anything that you particularly like at the moment in terms of, in terms of sector? Um, so look, we, we definitely agree it's a golden age. I think there's a few nuances in terms of the way we look at private credit versus a lot of our peers. Um, you know, you'll have heard our CEO, Mark Rowan, talking about the way we, we think of private credit, not just in terms of financing LBOs, but but really a much broader opportunity set. So including lots and lots of investment grade opportunities. And if you look at investment grade issuers in Europe, a lot of them are looking to diversify their funding sources away from the bond market. You look at um, deals like the the deal we did with Vonovia um, in, the, in the spring of this year. 
um, where, you know, the company had really good assets, um, but was seeking to protect its rating. And by speaking, you know, in scale uh, and being thoughtful around structure, we were able to, to do something which was protective to their rating and, and, you know, very, very attractive for us. So I think that's really an important angle for us in terms of, of, of what we look to do in, in private credit rather than exclusively in the, uh, in the kind of traditional unit tranche space. Um, in terms of sectors, uh, look, it's it's probably a bit a bit glib and uninteresting to say that with macro data slowing the way it is, we're steering clear of anything that's going to cycle super hard. For example, a lot of the post-COVID winners, um, you know, the travel, the revenge travel dynamic, you saw a, a lot of that stuff has has done super well. Pricing's been pushed enormously in a lot of those issuers, um, and and I think it's something we'd probably seek to to, to steer clear of. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of returns to be made, top of capital structure in non-cyclical businesses where your ability to be speaking in, in size, quick to execute and, and sophisticated in your underwrite really is enough of an edge. And when you look across the board at everything, I mean, you cover quite a broad swath of um, credit globally. Is private credit the best opportunity? Let's take it on a like 12 month horizon. Is that the best thing to, to look at right now? Yes. Look, there's a ton of opportunity across the credit market. Um, you know, there's some very interesting features to the high yield bond market in Europe, given how short dated that market's got. So we're we're super engaged in looking at, you know, the, the names that need to refi, will and won't be able to, etc. But if I had to pick a single area that I think you're meant to lean into, and frankly, where we're seeing where we're seeing clients lean into as well, uh, it is private credit. And is it mostly in Europe or mostly in the US or any particular geographic focus? No, look, I think I think you're seeing attractive opportunities on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, you know, I, I, I'd struggle really to differentiate in terms of there being one market that's that's outright compelling versus the others. There's probably a little bit more spread still in Europe in, in, in a lot of private credit. Um, but but as we touched at the beginning, that, that that's you know, possibly for good reason, given slightly softer macro here. So I, I don't think there's like a standout relative value in terms of, of private credit product on either side of the Atlantic. You mentioned refinancings. So far, when in this higher rate environment, there hasn't been that much of a need because a lot of companies pushed out maturities during COVID and right afterwards. But now the maturity wall is starting to build and people are companies are going to have to deal with it next year and the year after. Do you think there's enough capital and appetite to refinance all these firms, given the higher interest rate, which seems to be staying higher for longer? Mm. Um, they might not be able, many companies might not be able to hold the debt burdens that they have now. So can you address that a bit? Yeah, that's what's so interesting. So if you look at the European high yield market at the moment, it's the shortest status it's ever been. The weighted average life of, of the European high yield market is about three and a half years. So for these companies, the time really is now. Um, it made sense that they weren't refinancing all that proactively given both credit spreads and rates were higher. But over the next couple of years, in the next three years, 50% of the European high yield market has got to refinance. And they're going to refinance at higher all-in cost of funding. That's a super interesting dynamic for us because if you're buying bonds materially below par, um, on average, they're taken out 16 months ahead of maturity. So you've got a real pull to par story there, but you've got to get it right because some of these companies aren't going to be able to. And you haven't got very much time. You know, if something goes wrong, you haven't got very much time to, 
to correct your mistake to get yourself into a refinanceable shape. So we think there's this is why you're going to start to see even more dispersion because the maturity is the the best catalyst for for establishing whether you know a credit is is viable or not. In terms of whether there's enough capital out there, yeah, I think there is across um, across private private debt and, and public markets that there's, there's still a lot of capital. There's an enormous amount of, of appetite for credit generally because of the way risk reward has improved at the top of the capital structure. But that's going to be pointed at the, the viable businesses, the capital structures that work. And for those who are just too levered running into refinancing, um, you know, they're not all going to make it. Uh, and, and that kind of catalyst environment is something that's very invigorating for us as a fundamental driven credit house. So, Christian, before we talk to Matt Goyner over at Bloomberg Intelligence, I just kind of wanted to push you a bit on the risks. Um, obviously, this is a credit show. We're credit guys. We worry about stuff all the time. And there's so much macro stress. There's so much political stress. There's so much you know, fundamental stress, frankly. What really keeps you up at night worrying about credit at the moment? What are you most concerned about? Well, look, the, the higher rates environment is part of the opportunity here. Um, but but as Lisa just touched on, it, it's also part of the threat. You know, all these capital structures that were put in place in a very different rates environment, and frankly speaking, normally a lower spread environment, have now got to reset um, their debt, their, their their capital structures at a much much higher all-in interest cost. If that's happening at a time when macro is deteriorating fast and you're unable to improve your earnings, that obviously can be a, a very uncomfortable vice that these companies are put in. So. The macro slowdown combined with the fact that at least so far in Europe, you haven't seen rates collapse is is an uncomfortable place for the market to be in. It's providing a huge array of opportunities. It's providing great all-in returns to credit, which they say on the medium term, we think are ultra attractive and you're meant to be in. But you've got to be relying on your credit selection, making sure you're not going to find yourself in one of these capital structures where with this confluence of factors, it just doesn't work anymore. So the best hedge is just to avoid what could blow up. Yeah, look, it's a glib thing to say. And um, you'll always find fundamentals driven credit managers like us saying that, that, that it's the most important thing. But it's more the most important thing now than it has been for most of the 10 years, the last 10 years, rather, because the last 10 years have seen, you know, endlessly falling rates, e- easy refinancing conditions, generally speaking, very tight spreads. That period is over. So it really, really matters now. And as I said, because of the relatively short-dated nature of the market, and that's in both high-yield and leveraged loans, the um, you know the, the test of all these capital structures is coming sooner rather than later. Great stuff. Tristram Leach, co-head of European Credit at Apollo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. And Lisa Lee of Bloomberg News in London. Brilliant to see you again. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. So as I mentioned earlier, we're joined by Matt Goitner with Bloomberg Intelligence in New York. How's it going, Matt? Everything's going good. Thanks for having me uh, on again. Appreciate it. Great. So last time you were on the show, we talked about revenge spending. We all did it. Maybe it's cooling off a bit now. But today we're going to look at pensions. Most of us have one or at least some kind of savings plan. Uh, But why do we care about pensions in the context of credit, Matt? Yeah, so um, our team, we recently did some work uh, trying to assess the potential impact of the surge in rates that we've seen for uh, companies within the uh, S&P 500 that have some of the largest underfunded uh, pension positions. So there's a lot of inputs that sort of get distilled down into coming up with total assets within the pensions, uh, total liabilities, and those assets need to fund uh, into the future. 
So despite all that, there's a couple of levers that can really get these liabilities moving one way or the other, uh, those being the discount rate used to measure the pension liabilities owed and the return on assets within the pension plan, the difference, if any, when the liabilities exceed the pension plan assets being referred to as the underfunded portion. Let me just stop you there because it's getting very, very technical very, very quickly. Break it down for us, for those who don't know how this stuff works. Um, how does it work in practice? I mean, you mentioned underfunded, you mentioned discount rate. Break it down in really basic terms for us. Yeah, so the, the mechanics of the discount rate is, is pretty straightforward. So uh, the higher the potential rate you can theoretically earn, the lower the future payments uh, would be um, and vice versa. So the yield on the Moody's AA index is what's typically used as a proxy for where discount rates could end up uh, when these companies snap the line or, or take their measurement, uh, which happens at year end. So we've seen uh, yields on the AA index continue to climb, uh, which started in 2021 as the Fed has aggressively raised. So for context, last year, the surge in rates helped drive down uh, total underfunding uh, by about 40%. Um, so using the EQS function that we have available on the terminal, we identified the top 15 uh, most underfunded pension plans that could stand to benefit by revising upward their discount rate that they use to measure those liabilities. So the guys that surfaced to the top were GE, Lockheed, uh, Boeing, Exxon, and, and AT&T, uh, with the entirety of those underfunded pension obligations totaling about $85 billion, and those top 15 comprising a little over half of that figure. But in really basic terms, though, these are large companies in the U.S. that are basically saying to their employees, "Pay into some plan, and when you retire, we'll we'll give you X amount as a as a as a recurring payment over time." That's exactly correct. And what we're talking about is how the the funds that the companies have available in those funds in the pension pools. I'm not going to use funds because it's confusing. <laughs> is is not sufficient to cover what they need to pay in the future, or it has not been sufficient in the past. But now, because of higher rates, they're catching up. That's correct. So there would be the underfunded portion or the shortfall. So the, the rise in rates would help effectively shrink that gap. And when rates were effectively zero for such a long time, um, companies were running short by how much? Yeah, they were, they, were getting, they were getting pretty big. So for that 40% figure, that was over $140 billion just last year. Um, so the yield on the double the A index is hovering around 6% right now. And that's relative to 5% to start the year. Uh, which will provide a, a potential tailwind for financial risk profiles and adjusted leverage, all us being uh, equal. And that's important because raters include those obligations in their debt calculations as these are liabilities or obligations that are owed. Um, so each company's sensitivity is, is different, to, so the potential upside can vary by company. Um, so for example, a company I cover is Boeing, so their discount rate is about 5.4%. So that's a little over 50 basis points below where yields currently are. Uh, with their sensitivity to just a 25 basis point increase in that discount rate, equivalent to an almost $1.3 billion improvement in underfunding. So, you know, with all the puts and takes, we calculated more than halving of these liabilities for the OEM, which, given some of the issues they're contending with now related to the max and pressure on, on deliveries here near term related to the AF bulkhead issue, uh, the improvement can help drive some financial flexibility as they look to complete re uh, rework without incurring uh, the potential for more negative uh, rating activity. Okay. So again, um, you're throwing out indexes and double A's and that sort of thing. I'm just um, going to ask the dumb question again. So why do we look at that index particularly? Is it is that what the companies in their pension plans are invested in or is that what the companies it's, are rated? Yes. That's, so it's used as a proxy for what they could potentially earn. It's a high quality basket of, of bonds. Okay. Um, so 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, earlier uh, the big lever that they could drive underfunding wire lower also includes those returns on pension plan assets. So those monies are invested in different types of assets, which generate hopefully uh, positive returns for the year, which would in theory increase assets and thus reduce your underfunding. Um, so those returns could prove more muted this year based on our analysis of a sort of broad array of benchmark indices with mixed performance across various a- asset classes, but that would still be better than the significantly negative returns that we saw in 2022. So we saw that sea of red, uh, which offset some of the benefits that were derived from the higher discount rates, uh, which this year may not uh, have such a sort of deleterious uh, impact. So I'd highlight that you know, the discount rates, pension returns, uh, they can vary based on asset allocation. So in the case of Boeing, their investments are heavily weighted toward fixed income at a little over 60%, the Moody's AA index being a, a fixed income uh, indice. And equities uh, near 15% private equity and real estate, each under 10%, and hedge funds the remainder. Whereas a guy like AT&T, who is also on the list, is weighted 45% towards fixed income, 11% equities, 30% between real estate and private equity, and the remainder is sort of a, a hodgepodge of, of different uh, uh, asset holdings. And when um, in the past these uh, pension funds were actually running underfunded, uh, there was a big gap. How much was the credit market penalizing them for that? Did it matter? Uh, it does matter for for some of the uh, some of the, the the bigger guys because obviously, at least from a credit standpoint, you know, if you hypothetically had a, a bankruptcy, these obligations would be sort of peri sue with senior and secure bondholders, which is sort of our, our bread and butter here at, uh, at BI Credit. So, you know, that's definitely something that you need to keep an eye on to to understand that those are also technically creditors. Uh, of the company outside of just what you would traditionally think of as a bondholder or somebody who has loans. So when you flip it now and you're looking at the gap closing, how much are credit markets um, rewarding these companies that are closing that gap? Um, that's a good question. I, I, couldn't, I can't pinpoint it down to a, an exact uh, sort of science. Is there relative value, though, in the, in the companies that are benefiting most? Potentially, you know, they, they have less of a risk because their pension fund gaps have been closed. Therefore, they offer better value, potentially? Uh, from well, certainly from a, from a credit standpoint, because you would certainly be improving your your financial risk profile. All else equal, you would have lower adjusted leverage. Um, all sort of driving relative value views on on some of the bonds, as those would be obligations that were once larger are now smaller. So higher rates are actually good. I mean, they've been hammering bonds across the board because of duration, but higher rates in this context are actually good for. Some yeah, companies? that's sort of the silver lining behind uh, the surge in rates that we've seen is okay. some shrinking of these liabilities. You mentioned a few of them. Are there any other names that stand out? Um, so Steve Flynn, was, who's part of our team, our TMT team, put together some some work looking at relative impacts within, this, within the TMT space. So AT&T could stand to benefit as obligations owed at year-end were the highest within telco, and that accounted for 45% of the sector itself. Um, with leverage ratios inclusive of pension shortfalls having the biggest potential impacts for guys that he covers like Paramount or uh, Lumen given their uh, relatively lower um, absolute EBITDA base. And uh, Mike Campalone, who's part of our consumer team, uh, writes to guys like Kroger and Albertsons, which have a pending acquisition and both uh, maintaining significant multi-employer pension plans as well as some, some shelf insurance liabilities and some leases, which altogether can increase the uh, adjusted debt that Raiders look at by over $8 billion. So we could see some potential improvement there in terms of, uh, of those adjusted figures. So you know, hopefully that gives a little bit of flavor to uh, everyone listening on 
the importance of looking at uh, yeah. rising rates and, and the potential impact on, on financial risk profiles. Yeah, and this closing of the gap, does it continue at this pace? Uh, if you have higher for longer, that would certainly mean that the rates that you set can sort of be a more steady state. Um, but well, I guess we'll have to see what the uh, what the future brings through uh, through mid-decade. Okay. So just to wrap things up, Matt, I mean, what else are you looking at right now? You, you cover a huge range of industries, but what else should we be paying attention to? What's on your radar? Uh, what else is on my radar right now? I mean, we're sort of in the thick of it with uh, with earnings. So I think uh, one of the more interesting stories is the sort of Raytheon and the uh, uh, large debt-funded buyback that's they're sort of doing. So I would expect them to be coming to market here pretty soon to sort of term out the uh, bridge loan that they they took out as part of their accelerated share repurchase as they sort of grind through the uh, powdered metal contaminant issue that's sort of grounding some of the uh, GTF engines and accelerating some of those inspections. So it's probably one of the more interesting uh, stories going on. But raising uh, debt to pay back stockholders, that's not good for the bonds, is it? No, generally that's 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 not not a good thing. That's why the uh, BAA one triple B plus ratings are now moved to uh, to negative outlook to and to ensure that the uh, GTF issues don't materially spread beyond what's already assumed. And more importantly, that uh, uh, Raytheon, when they accelerate these share repurchases, they'll turn around and then deleverage the balance sheet through mid decade in line with what uh, is sort of expected by both Moody's and and S and P. Do we worry about a downgrade for them in the short term? Uh, downgrade. They've already gone to negative outlook, so I think right now they're they're probably okay. I think it really becomes a question of uh, funding mix uh, when they term out the uh, bridge loan that they have. How much short term debt do they expect to have in order to pull a lever to be able to deleverage the balance sheet and have absolute debt reduction? So Moody's expecting somewhere around five billion dollars, which would be uh, half of what the total ASR is, and then you have some maturities which. It's a little around $3 billion um, that they could also pay down. And they also have some pending uh, asset sales, which could bring in another $3 billion in proceeds. So they certainly have levers that they could put in place and then pull to uh, deleverage the balance sheet. It's just a matter of the magnitude and, and how quickly they want to uh, want to do it. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on Raytheon, and we'll be keeping an eye on your research and analysis. Matt Goitner with Bloomberg Intelligence in New York, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on the show very soon. And thanks again to Tristram Leach with Apollo, as well as Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of Lisa's great credit scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google and Spotify. Give us a review. Tell your friends or email me directly at jcrombie8 at Bloomberg.net. That's J-C-R-O-M-B-I-E, as in my surname, and the number 8 at Bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.